Hey, I don't know what the last week has been like for you. Um, I have people from all different kinds of walks of life. And uh, this last week has been pretty crazy for the San Tillon family. Uh, I don't know what season of life you're in, but we're in a season of life where we got you know kids in school and my wife is a teacher. And, uh, you know, so school has started. We're shifting kids here and there and dropping kids off before work and all this kind of crazy stuff. And um, uh, I'm, uh, some of you know this, I'm entering my seventh year as a soccer coach at Osseo High School, uh, Ago Osseo. And uh, this, of course, means that my life is super crazy daily with like soccer practices and weekly games for the first couple months of school, right? So I'm, because we have like practices every single day <laughs> from 3 to 4.30 and then we have games and all that kind of stuff. So life is just kind of crazy. And then uh, my daughter uh, made varsity as an eighth grader this year, like, woo So that's crazy. So I'm trying to go to all these varsity games, trying to go see her. And then uh, Brennan, my son, he's in marching band now. So we're trying to go to football games. I'm trying to see him march. And then we got our daughter. So like, life is crazy. If you've been there before, if you've been there, done that, you know what that's like. If you've never been there, uh, God bless you. Um, um, so anyways, despite this, um, you know, before we kind of jump into what I want to talk about today, I, I do, I do want to mention, cause I think sometimes it's helpful because every time I've seen preachers come up, sometimes it's, and it's good that it's all about, you know, the scripture and all about God's word. But I, I think sometimes we forget to share how God is, is working in our own lives. I get to do this with my community, so we get to see this, but corporately, I, I don't ever get to talk about what God's up to in my own life. And so, um, you know, I, I love how God, one of the things that we've always believed in as a church is that we believe that God uses how he's created us, our abilities, our gifts, our talents as opportunities for his glory for the gospel, if we're willing to see that. And one of the things I love is I love how God has used my love for soccer and my love for coaching young people as a way to create an open door for me to intentionally be connected to doing good, one, in my community. We call this sometimes bringing shalom into our community. So uh, I, I'm, you know, I, at least I, I hope I'm doing good. My players may or may not think so. <laughs> That's to be debated. But I, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm doing good in my community. You're not doing it for the money. If anyone ever knows what it, you know, coaching high school sports is definitely not. It's not like, it's not something you lucratively get into so you can like build a career. Um, so you do it because you, you want to pour into young people. Um, but it also, what it does for me specifically as a, as a person who, as a pastor who makes his vocation um, in ministry, I I know that as a person who used to work at a large church, I used to work at a large church here in in the area, and I I was able to work full time for the church. I get up every morning. I got you know got in at 8 a.m. and then you could leave, and then and every single day, and then my wife could stay home. I I knew what that life was like about, but you know I would get up, I'd list, I'd get up, and in my Christian home, I'd I'd eat some Christian pancakes, and then I. would drive into my Christian car and go to my Christian workplace and talk to my Christian co-workers and have Christian meetings and then, you know, have lunch over, you know, Christian Applebee's and then, you know, because all Applebee's is Christian. And so, and then, you know, we, right, right, that was my life. And I knew, I knew that when we started Clarity Church, if I didn't take the effort to connect myself into the community around me, 
Uh, I would never, I would never meet people who are far from Jesus. I would never meet people who are on a journey. Maybe they aren't far from Jesus, but they're close, but they need someone who could help get them there. That's called discipleship, by the way. And, um, and the reason why I say this is because I just want to remind you, I'm doing this not to brag, but I'm doing it to say, look, you can do this. Everything that God has given you, every opportunity he's given you, every skill he's given you are open doors, whether we realize it or not, not just to make income, not just to build prestige, not just to create accomplishments and, and build a resume, but God is doing it for his glory. And, um, you know, I love that this has allowed me to build relationships with people in my community who are far from Christ. And that's something I, I don't want us to forget. You know, it's been said, uh, and while I'm talking about this idea of coaches, it's, it's been said that great coaches take the time to strategically stop in the daily grind of practice, drills, and workouts, and help their players understand the why behind the what. To explain that being a good teammate just doesn't mean helping your team win games. If you've ever had a good coach, if you've ever been involved in sports, you've, you know that the, the great coaches, the coaches that you remember, did more than just help a team learn how to win. What did they do? They help create the kind of habits in the realm of sports that really allow you to bring value, whether it's in the sports arena or it's in your everyday lives, to help you bring value into the relationships of your everyday life. I, I tell my, my girls, I say, you know, we, we show up and we work hard every single day, not so that we just get better, but so that all of us get better, right? Because when, when one of us is better, we're all better. We have this idea of community. And in the same way, I think great pastors do the work of preaching. So if like drills and uh, practices and workouts is something that coaches, you know, we, that's, a, that's, a, that's what coaches do. Uh, do this drill, run, ready, go. Okay, go ahead, drop, give me, <laughs> that's what we, that's, that's kind of the norm us when you think of what coaches do. And, and in the same way, I think when you think like, what do pastors do? Well, they preach, right? They preach. And I think great pastors not only just do the work of preaching through the scripture, right? While um, I think one of the things that they do is they also just strategically take time to address how the scripture helps us understand and forgive me for saying this with clarity, what it means to live a gospel-centered life within the everyday rhythms of our lives. I think great, great pastors do that. Good pastors preach the word faithfully, but I think great pastors know when to figure out how, to, how, how does the gospel connect with the rhythms of our everyday lives. With that said today, we're taking a break for what has been over a year and a half, believe it or not. <laughs> through the journey, through the book of Acts. We've been in the book of Acts for a year and a half. We're getting close to the end. I, um, we started it in, in March when, we, when, we, when COVID hit because I said, I said, wow, we're heading into what feels like persecution. Uh, let's get some perspective of what it means to have the gospel be effective in the midst of persecution because I think if we read Acts, we would go like, okay, this is not that bad. Uh, uh, the gospel can still work. Right? We didn't have to face lions and animals and mobs and right, and the gospel moved forward. And so I, I think uh, the desire there was to create a gospel-centered vision for our lives, that God could, through our lives, continue the work of reaching people for him, uh, uh, for, uh, reaching people with the gospel. And so today we're taking a break, and over the next few weeks, what I want to do is 
uh, talk about what I believe God desires of this local expression of this church. I want to talk about how clarity is more than just a word um, that is like a name of a church. It's a weird one. I, I get it. Uh, in, in fact, it might be weird because we struggled for very long. Like, what do you call a church? We never really figured that out. We, we knew what we wanted to do, which is um, I had this deep-seated inkling that the problem in our society, and this is 2013, this is 2013, and I think as I say this even now, it's like it becomes even more apparent, but the, the great problem that the church faces isn't the fact that people have not heard about Jesus, or they haven't heard what sounds like the gospel. They've just received something that isn't very clear. You look at your Westboro Baptists who, who protest like soldiers' funerals and say, you know, bleeps go to hell, you know, figured in. Um, and, and, the, and then you have people on, on the way on the other side that, that call themselves Christians. And so uh, society is, they just have this skewed view of what is it mean to be someone who believes in the gospel? What is the gospel? And I just thought that, I thought what the church needed to recapture was a sense of clarity on who Christ is. And if we can just help people understand who Christ is, then all the work of trying to convince people, all the apologetics of that, that uh, maybe previous generations have really bought into this idea of like convincing people with science and how science proves that Jesus, and, and there's a place for that. But I just, I just, I look at our culture and I go, people, people don't want to know First of all, when you, when you combat them with like, well, you're wrong, and this is why, you're, you're an idiot, and even science proof, like that's just not the way you, you build bridges, by the way. Um, but if we help people understand who Jesus really is, not only in word, but in deed, and how we live our lives, I just believed with all my heart that God would do something great. And I still believe that with all my heart. And so before... In the next, you know, next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about this idea of clarity, uh, uh, what it means to be a, a movement and a means. Uh, there's some things I kind of want to talk about that. But before we get talking about that journey that God has taken us as a church, and really the vision that I believe God has for us for the future, uh, I think it's important just to pause first and talk about what it is we believe about who God is and what He is up to, uh, because. It is our conviction that all of life is a result of what we believe about these three things. At least I do. And maybe I'll say this and you're like, I never thought of it that way. Or maybe you're like, oh, yeah, that's, that, that sounds right. But at least I believe, it's my conviction that all of life is a result of what we believe about these three things. One, who God is. Like how I, who I think God is deeply influences, influences, I put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable, deeply influences my life. Two, what he has done. Like what I believe that God has done specifically, as you can guess, through the work and the person of his son, Jesus. And three, so the first two have to do about God, and what do you think the third has to do? About us about who we are in light of the truth about who God is and what he has already done and what he promises to do. Another way to put it is that how we live out the gospel is directly informed by what we believe is the gospel story. Some of you have heard me say this before. 
and how we find or maybe not find, because some people don't, their identity in the gospel. And so if you'd allow me, <laughs> this sounds maybe remedial, but I think it's just a good reminder. I, I'm not going to dive into a passage of Scripture and try to parse it and pull out all the commentary and stuff. There's, there's t- we do that a lot. But today, I just wanted to, maybe as an encouragement to our hearts, because we need to hear it, could I, could I just preach the gospel this morning? And maybe, would you allow the, re- the truth of the gospel, not as a and I'm not preaching it so that like I could convict you, but it just needs to be said. Like it just needs to be proclaimed. And I would hope that as I speak about the gospel, you would allow the Holy Spirit, which is alive and well inside of every single person who says yes to faith in Jesus, would you allow the Holy Spirit to do what he does, which Roman tells us is to convict and reprove our hearts of where we are incongruent with God's standard and God's way. Does that make sense? So if that's okay, I want to talk about the gospel. Particularly, I want to talk about the gospel story. First of all, the gospel story is a story that's primarily, first and foremost, about God. That one, God has always existed. John 1.1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Two, that God is the creator of everything. 1 Corinthians 8.6 tells us, but for us there is one God, the Father by whom all things were created and for whom, for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, in whom all things were created and through whom we live. So God has always existed. God is the creator of everything. And third is this. God is the only one in this story that we call the gospel who always does what is good. He is the only one who always does what is right. He is the only one that is perfect. In the story of what is the gospel, the scripture says that he is holy. And this is what Jesus taught when he said in Mark 10, 18, no one is good except who? God alone. Over the years, uh, we've talked about the many different perspectives one can use to build a, uh, an understanding about the gospel. And still all the presentations of the gospel, I think there's, there's many ways, if you've been part of any kind of churches, there's, there's many ways people present the gospel. But one of the things that I've, I've just come to realize, and I, I dig my heels deeper and deeper as every year goes by and I hear different ways that people present the gospel, I am still convinced that the gospel follows the explanation of the scriptures, four themes of the story of the gospel. And you've, if you've been around here for a while, you've heard this. But what are those four themes of the scripture? Right? If we believe the gospel isn't just Jesus came, died for your sins, and say yes, get a prayer, dunk in water, so then you can get the promise of going to heaven and getting angels' wings. Like if the, if the gospel is more than that, if the gospel is the story of Genesis to Revelation, and it's an ongoing story, the gospel is ongoing, then what is this story? Well, I like to put it, and it's not new to me. It's, many people have talked about these. It's called the meta-narrative, if you want to geek out on the idea of how theologians have talked about this. But the meta-narrative of the gospel, which is found in these four movements, one, creation, separation, promise, rescue, and restoration. Creation, separation, promise, rescue, 
and, rest, and restoration. And these four, four themes tell more than just the reality of what God does and, and who he is, but as I hope we will see clearly, it speaks of how we're able to view ourselves and how we are to live out this divine calling in our lives. So how do these four themes of God's story reveal we can understand our calling towards gospel clarity? Well, honestly, this theme of creation, separation, promise, rescue, and restoration, if you've read through the Bible before, you're like, wait, that's, that's kind of like the themes of chronologically when I read the scripture. And it's, again, this is not rocket scientists. I'm not saying anything that is new, okay? So this is what believers have believed really since the beginning of the movement of what is, we, was used to be called the way. But so creation, the theme of creation comes from the gospel story, which deals with the question that we ask it all uh, at some time in our lives. Where, where does my identity come from? It asks us to consider from the perspective of the gospel, like what do I assume this world is like and, and, and should be like? It's, it, it starts in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, who? God. And everything from there asks, make, make, you know, begs from us to ask these kind of questions. What kind of person do I think I am? And, 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 and what kind of person would I like to be? What, what would, what would have to be in place in my life to make me happy? And then there's this theme of separation. The theme of separation deals with the reality of brokenness in our lives, where it comes from. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth and he made everything what? All good. But then there was brokenness that happened. You see, the theme of separation deals with the reality that brokenness came when we decided in our hearts to believe the lie that God was not for us, that he did not have his best for us, but instead that maybe we could by our own doing, if we did something, we could be like God. And so... Since the beginning of that time, as we know from the scripture, the curse of sin has been the foundation of our struggles and our battles. It makes us believe that we're lacking something. That was the temptation in the garden. Oh, did God really? Well, I don't know, serpent. We just thought that whatever God said had, it was, was good. Well, he's holding something back for you. He knows if you would eat it, You'd become like him. I never realized that I was lacking something. And so this idea of separation is this theme in Scripture that every one of us has this deep-rooted feeling of lacking of something. It's the reason why you too wrote a song like, you know, I'm still, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And, and throughout the, throughout the years, poets and artists have, 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 have capitalized on this theme of wanting and wandering and self-discovery. And it, it's, it's a theme of our current generation, like how to discover yourself. And where does that come from? It comes because the problem of sin and separation has created in us now this idea of we're lacking something. And, and even worse, because we're lacking something, we have to find someone else who is responsible for our problems. You remember the, in the Garden of Eden, uh, in the story, in the narrative, uh, God, God goes to, to Adam. Hey, why are you naked? And what does Adam say? The woman you gave me, right? And so, you know, <laughs> chauvinism was, was like first sign of 
the, the, uh, of the fall, right? <laughs> so you have, what, it's this idea of casting blame. And so separation, this theme of separation, you'll see this all throughout the Scripture. You see through all this out the Old Testament. There's this, there's this sin and this brokenness, and then the nations want to blame this and want to blame that and want to blame this and we blame this and blame that. And it's still the problem of our lives if we're honest with ourselves. But the good news just doesn't stop there, right? There's promise. The theme of promise deals with what is the solution to our problem or problems. It asks us to consider from a gospel perspective, what do I think will make my life better? What provides me with a sense of escape or relief? Who will deliver my hopes and dreams? As we'll talk about later, we know that is who? Jesus. And then, last but not least, this idea of rescue and restoration. The theme of rescue and restoration in the Scripture deals with the reality of what it is we are actually placing our hope in, like every single day that we live. It asks us to consider from a gospel perspective, what are the dreams I'm willing to make sacrifices for? That's a good question. Or is my hope so minimal that I only make it through today? Because there is a kind of a spectrum that people kind of live through. It makes us ask from a gospel perspective, what is the long-term goal that my life is working towards? So, for example, let's just take a look at this. Now that I talked about these themes, the gospel in Genesis 3 gets reinterpreted by the serpent and turns into a lie in this way according to the four themes, right? So the lie about creation is this. The serpent is able to convince Eve of this. We are meant to be gods and rule our own lives. Our identity is not defined by God. Instead, our identity is defined by what we do. The lie about separation that the serpent is able to convince us is this. We are held back by God and his insecurities. Oh, he doesn't want you to become like him. And so he leads us to believe that God is the problem. And really, the serpent is the first one to cause us to entertain the idea that we are already separated from God because God cannot be trusted to be 100% into us and dedicated to us. Prior to the serpent, Adam and Eve walked in communion with God daily. And it wasn't until the serpent introduced this idea that God's holding something from you. He's not really 100% into you. And he's holding, it was really the serpent who caused us to entertain this idea. And the evil one establishes this lie that all of our problems start with God and cements this ideology by convincing us to embrace distrust in God and simultaneously overconfidence in ourselves to motivate the actions of our everyday lives. Think about that. Think about how the evil one has caused us to now not use God's word, his will, and his way to motivate the everyday rhythms of our lives, but instead we, we buy into this, like, well, what is it that I want? And what is it that I want to accomplish? And what are my dreams and my hopes? And then I'm going to... It's subtle. And that's what the evil one does. He's able to steer us away. The lie about God's promise is this, according to Genesis 3, the lie is that we can be set free from God's holding us back by not trusting in God, by doubting Him, and not, by, and not listening to Him, and disobeying in Him. Go ahead, eat of that fruit. Take it. <laughs> and so the lie is that God cannot be trusted. And really, the only person you can trust is yourself. Have you heard that kind of philosophy before? 
Following these lies leads to a lie, eventually, regarding this idea of rescue and restoration that makes sense if you follow this line of thinking, but in the end, it's still a lie. When we are defined by what we do, we are led to believe that God does not have our best in mind and that we are the only ones capable of bringing the reality of what we want and desire into our lives so naturally. And unfortunately, we believe that we can be and should be. Here's the scary part. No one would admit this, but here's what happens. We believe that we should be the God, maybe little g, of our own lives. Maybe you don't say it like that. We say it like this. I am the master of my fate. I control. I can, you know, this is what we believe. In other words, our hope for bringing rescue from the power of sin, maybe we don't call it that. Maybe we call it rescuing us from the, from, from the, the pits of despair and our depression and all of our things and all of the bad circumstances of our life. But really, it's the power of sin at work in our lives and the restoration from the effects of sin is not found in God, but is in, is found. I know you won't believe, I know, I know, I know none of you would say this, but the temptation is to believe that it's now found in us. The only one who can save me is me. Have you ever been tempted to believe that? Like in the, in the pits of your despair, when life was its hardest, have you ever thought that? Or maybe have you ever got bad advice? <laughs> just got to pick yourself up. You just got to do it. And while that might be helpful and motivational, it is not lasting. And it definitely is not the gospel. Despite each of us buying into Satan's lie and rejecting God's word as rule, God's response, according to the scripture, is this. The gospel truth of the theme of creation is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he made man in what? His own image. That means you. That means me. We are created in the image of God. This means we are created to be with God, to love God, to reflect God's glory. And because God is love, we are, in turn, reflectors of the love of God. Our identity is defined by the one who created us. The gospel truth to the theme of separation is this. We have actually all rebelled, even though we are made in the image of God. We have all rebelled against God's rule. And the problem isn't others. The problem for why we are the way that we are and captured, enslaved by the brokenness of our sin is not because of others. It's because it's because of us. It's because of us. Our sin is a problem. A rebellion against God rule in our lives and the embracing of a self-rule leads to conflict. This, this embracing of self-rule, look at it sociologically, leads to conflict, poverty, slavery, death, and judgment. And in no way God is the problem of these things that we see in our world. It is a problem of man, men, and women, I say man in the sense of generalities, people, maybe I should say that, their desire to self-rule not only their selves, but their circumstances, to be little gods of their own circles of influence. And the gospel 
truth to the theme of promise, though, is this, that God is the great pursuer of our souls and is the only one who does what is good. He alone can be trusted. God is the solution for the problem of our sin. And the fantastic thing is that God looks at our blatant rebellion towards him and his standards and says this. He says, I see what you're doing. I see the sin. I see the brokenness. Listen, hey, hey, listen up, listen up, listen up. Lean in close, listen up. I love you anyways. I love you. And, and if you let me, I promise. I promise to bring solution to the brokenness of sin in your life the solution that sin has brought into all of creation. Because the solution we're looking for is, is really found in the promise of God to rescue and restore us to all creation, to do what he did in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he looked at it and he said, it was what? Good. And that is God's desire. That's his promise. That one day he will rescue and restore all of creation to once again set his his kingdom upon the earth and to say and to look at it and say, it is good. This is the plan of God. And so the gospel truth of the theme of rescue and restoration is this. I cannot save myself. You cannot save yourself. The only one who can save us is, guess who? (laughs) God. God is the one who rescues us from the penalty of our sins by sending his son, Jesus. God is the one who graciously enables us to live under his rule by paying the price of our judgment on the cross. Instead of suffering eternal separation from him and his rule, and his rule, I know in these connotations as Americans who want everything but their freedom, right? We all were, were obsessed about our freedom. But there, was a, there was a day when the idea of being under the rule of a good king was freedom. That was actually the definition of freedom. Not the, the idea of being able to pursue whatever I want, but being able to pursue what is good. Being able to live a life that pursues what is good. I love what Tim Keller said. Um, uh, he makes this illustration. If you don't like it, it's not my illustration. So then I'll just say, it's not mine. Just got to deal with it. But he makes this illustration. He says, he says, you know, if you take a fish out of water and, and you pull him out of water and you, and you throw him on the land and you say, go live, you're free. How well will he live? Not very well. But when you throw him in the water within the context that he was created for, she it could be a female fish. Why am I always saying he? It could you know that it was created for, that it was designed for. Guess what? That is then what freedom. And so freedom isn't just the the ability to do whatever I want, whatever. No, freedom is actually the ability to do what you were created for. So therefore, freedom requires asking. If if we want freedom, freedom requires asking, what were we created for? What were we designed for? Because embracing any other kind of life outside of that really isn't freedom. It's just delayed death. Okay? So that's not in my notes. I just thought about it because I heard that illustration this week. Um, So I cannot save myself. God is the one who rescues us from the penalty of our sins by sending his son. God is the one who graciously enables us to live under his will by paying the price of our judgment on the cross. And God will restore and recreate this broken world for us when King Jesus returns, when he's the hope. So, okay, I'm running out of time. I'm running out of time. And uh, so, listen, I is everyone with me so far? Yeah. Okay, ready? Okay. So, 
I know this is a little bit more philosophical than, than, and maybe more theological than we usually kind of go on trying, usually a little bit more practical, but I think this is just really, really important for us to understand the gospel in this way. And I know this is diving into maybe more theological thought than some of you like to entertain on only a cup of coffee. Um, but if you would, just allow me to try to illustrate what it would look like to live your life by other gospels that compete with Christ. You've heard me say this before if you've been around over the years. Um, I've said this before. We're all preaching some type of gospel to ourselves. Like we are all preaching some version of a gospel to ourselves. Like what is good news for our lives? We're all preaching some kind of news that proclaims what is good and what is right and what is true for us. Some are living our lives preaching a gospel of like body image. All of our lives decisions and our life decisions come from perspective of, will this make me look good? Some of us are preaching a gospel of, of, of happiness. In other words, happiness determines what choices we make, what desires we have and value, and, and, and what doesn't make us happy becomes our enemy. Some of us live our lives preaching a gospel of control. Uh, let me illustrate this, this idea. Uh, like all the other false gospels we preach ourselves, it gives us a false perspective of God's storyline and causes us to live in opposition to God's standards. And, and in fact, this one's the easiest one to demonstrate this idea of gospel of control. Here's, here's how, here's how you can understand it. Remember, we talked about these four themes. Like, so when you preach a gospel of control to yourself instead of the gospel is found in the scriptures, if you take a look at these themes like creation, well, the gospel of control tells me that I'm the creator. Therefore, I should be in control of my life. My identity is found in the decisions and the actions of my life. I am the master of my fate. And then when you think about this theme of separation, the gospel of control tells me that my life's problems have to do with things that are out of my control. <laughs> like, I have all these problems because things are out of my control. If I can just get things in control, things will be fine. And, and so it's other people or situations that prevent me from being in control or ruining or, or ruling my life. And then this idea of promise, like where do we get this hope? Well, the gospel of control tells me that to solve the problems of my life, I should either avoid situations that I cannot control or people who challenge my rule. <laughs> Therefore, the solution is to be freed from being controlled or objected to. And then when you think about this idea of rescue and restoration, the gospel of control tells me that my hope, my preferred future, that motivates all my current decisions and actions is found not in God, in his kingdom here on earth and his gospel and his truth, but it's found in working towards creating a life where my control is never challenged or it's never taken away. I am responsible for rescuing me from the man. Only I can restore power that is being taken away from me. So you have on one hand the gospel of God and then you have the gospel of control. And when we live out God's storyline, then God's good news response to each person struggling with control looks like this. So let's just go back to these themes. Like how would, how would the gospel counteract these, this idea of the gospel of control? Well, creation, the gospel is found in the, in the scriptures, tells us that God is what? God is the creator. And he has established our identity. And we find freedom in knowing that God is under control and that we are not. It's crazy. Separation, the gospel of God tells us and, and, and wants us to, to know that the problem is not outside of us, but it starts with us. We reject God's rule in favor of taking control of our lives for ourselves. Promise, the solution that the gospel offers us 
from this gospel of control is that God welcomes us back under his rule by promising and giving us Jesus, his humble sacrifice on the cross. And then we think about the gospel of, uh, of God when it comes to rescue and restoration. This idea is that the gospel establishes our hope that the future um, that God has for us is that God will restore all things as they should be. He will rule over all the world when King Jesus returns and, and we will experience a freedom from the brokenness of sin and a reality that our current life longs for. It's the things that we talk about at funerals every once in a while and we, we pour our hearts over it and we look with hope like, oh yes, I look for that one day when there will be no more tear, no more sorrows, no, oh, no more. And then we really embrace this idea of heaven and we really embrace this idea of God's promise and we, you know, as believers, we're like, we encourage one another and then, and then, then time passes by and then we, we buy into the lies. And, but if we, if we remember, like in those moments, like there is a hope. Isn't there a hope? There's a hope that God will one day break the power of sin that runs free in this world. I mean, he has broken the power, but he will one day squash it out. He will eliminate it once and for all. So pursuing gospel clarity is calling in our lives means more, uh, means that every day and in every circumstance of our life, we would be preaching the reality of the gospel into our lives. This is the calling of clarity. This is clarity's calling. We would be looking at how these themes, and I've said creation, fall, promise, rescue, restoration. Call it whatever you want. Just make sure you find it in the Scripture. (laughs) And when you look at the Scripture, you'll find out who God is, what He does or has done, and who we are in light of who God is and what God wants to accomplish through our lives. So, with that said, here's a great question you can ask yourself. Maybe today, or if that seems a little bit too uh, demanding, you could write it down and ask yourself this question over the week. What is just one area where you want to have more of a gospel-centered outlook on your life? Where are you struggling to see how the gospel influences your life? Is it a relationship or your marriage? Is it a job? Is it your own personal feelings of self-worth or identity? And because it's 2021, you're right, you know, is it, is it not only just coming to identity on, on sides of vocation, but sexuality? What is it? Where do you want the gospel to influence your life?